Colossians 1, 1 through 14. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We've done this since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. You have this faith and love because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You previously heard about this hope through the true message, the good news, which has come to you. This message has been bearing fruit and growing among you since the day you heard and truly understood God's grace in the same way that it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. You learned it from Epaphras, who is the fellow slave we love and Christ's faithful minister for your sake. He informed us of your love in the Spirit. Because of this, since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're praying this so that you can live lives that are worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way by producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God by being strengthened through his glorious might so that you endure everything and have patience and giving thanks with joy to the Father. He made it so you could be part of the inheritance in light, in light granted to God's holy people. He rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He set us free through the Son and forgave our sins. I'm Megan, the teaching pastor here at Trinity, and this morning we are beginning a new sermon series on the book of Colossians. Um, I particularly enjoy when we do sermon series here that are kind of studies of particular books of the Bible, um, because one of the gifts of doing this, kind of like opening the Bible on your own, is um, when you don't come in with an agenda, God gets to surprise you with whatever God has to say. Um, so I was already surprised this week as I began to just come to Colossians and listen openly for what God was saying. And I want to invite all of you in the, in the weeks ahead as we kind of work our way through this letter, um, maybe you might want to commit to a practice of reading through this letter to Colossians, not very long, but reading through it once each week as we're in this series and kind of letting the words begin to sink in and just ask God what God has to say. And let's be surprised together by the possibilities of what we hear. I invite you to pray with me as we approach this book. God, we thank you so much for the gift of this book where we get to eavesdrop on words you have spoken to people who came before us. We thank you also that you are still speaking, that Jesus said that when he went away, he was going to send his Holy Spirit so that you could continue to teach us and remind us and open our eyes to um, what you were doing and what you were saying in the world here and now today. So we pray that as we approach the book of Colossians, our ears would be open to you, to the words spoken before, to the words spoken now, 
so that we can live fully and freely for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this letter to the Colossians was written by a man named Paul who once hated Christians and then became one after he met the resurrected Jesus uh, personally um, to the Christians at, in a city called Colossae. Um, Colossae was a smallish city in modern-day Turkey. It was actually the, the smallest community that Paul wrote to in the New Testament. And um, the, what you should know about the, the Christians at Colossae is that the church in this city was basically brand new. Um, they had only heard of Jesus and his story for the first time a few years ago um, from a man named Epaphras. Um, so, so what you have here is a community of, of all brand new Christians. And I, I think there's something really special and interesting about talking to people who've recently met Jesus for the first time. Um, sometimes as, as I'm sitting in our, with our community in worship, I, I ask myself as I reflect on, on why I'm here and I ask like, why are, why are you all here? I'm gathering for worship. And I, I wonder to myself, like, do we remember what difference Jesus makes? Because um, I, I find that being a Christian, sometimes knowing Jesus is, is a little bit like um, electricity, if you've ever spent some time living in a country that has no electricity, like, like I have, you swear to yourself you will never take for granted again the miracle of like switching a light switch and having light and hot showers. Like electricity makes so many things possible. Um, but then you come back and you get into a life where you just take it for granted, like on go the lights and you never think about it again. Right? Jesus has changed everything, but sometimes he's so close and he's so familiar to some of us who grew up around Christianity and around the church that we don't really see or remember what difference he makes. I had a chance some years back on a trip to spend some time talking to a, a local man here in Phoenix who um, used to be a part, in his younger years, was a part of a, a pretty violent motorcycle gang here in Phoenix and had been introduced to Jesus and it changed everything for him. Like even years later, he could look back and like it would never go away for him. The difference between knowing Jesus and not knowing Jesus was everything in the world. So it's interesting as we come into this letter to Colossians to remember, this is a whole community, like an entire church of people, none of whom grew up with the story of Jesus. They weren't there because their family were Christians. They weren't there out of habit. Like these are people who a few years ago had never heard the story and every one of them were there because they'd heard something and encountered something in Jesus that was so powerful and so revolutionary that they were willing to turn their entire lives on their heads to be a part of this Jesus movement. So what did they see and encounter that made this incredible life-transforming shift for every single one of them? Well, that, that's what we're going to kind of explore in a second. Um, but Paul begins his letter to them in verses 3 and 4 by just saying this. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We've done this since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. I mean, right here in two words, Paul basically sums up the, the entire kind of Christian story, Christian life, the vision of Christianity. Your faith, you have faith, you have trust in Jesus and love for all God's people and not just the ones you like. 
That, that for Paul, is Christianity in a nutshell. That's, that's the whole thing. It's, it's that simple. And so sometimes we overcomplicate it and we make it sound like it's about a whole lot. Like this is the heart of Christian faith right here. It, it's that straightforward, but it's also that hard. There was a time in my life where I, I had a vision of Christianity that was much more rule-driven. And you know, the thing about rule-driven religion is like, you have to learn a lot of rules, but it's pretty easy to practice because you just do and don't do certain stuff. Right? But the, the more that I've been kind of captured by this vision of Jesus that's really about who do you trust and who do you love, the simpler it gets, but also the harder it gets. Like, what is the reservoir that that love comes from? You know, I find myself asking this a lot. Like, when, you're, when your love runs dry, like, where is it supposed to be renewed from? How, how do you actually get to the practice of this kind of thing? And that's exactly what Paul answers in the next verse in verse 5. He says, you have this faith and love. That's really the heart of what Christianity is. You have it because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You might note here that there's a little triad, faith, hope, and love. Have you heard that triad before? Um, this is most familiar to a lot of people from a, another letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians where he said, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Like That's a familiar verse to a lot of people. It gets read in weddings. Um, but what's kind of interesting is that Paul um, often brings these three words together, um, but most of the time when, when Paul talks about them, he says them in a different order, in this order. Faith, love, and hope. Now, that matters because the accent is always on the final word in a sequence. You have faith and love because you have hope. In other words, when your hope changes, your life changes. Everything else happens because you have hope to begin with. Um, now, I know this is true because um, true vulnerable confession here, one of the things I've noticed in my own life is that like, the, the lower my hope gets in my life, in the state of the world, the less I exercise. Because, you know, if none of it matters, if it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, why would you do burpees? Like, I mean, honestly, it just makes more sense to eat Cheetos in bed, and that's typically what happens. And I know this is not just me. Like, this is a case study in human behavior. When people have no hope, they make really bad decisions. This is true about virtually everybody. When your hope goes down, your decisions get worse. When you're full of hope, when you think there's all sorts of possibilities for the future, I mean, even, even hard circumstances don't seem like that big of a deal. Like, you, you have this kind of joy and this, this energy because you know there's something good ahead you're reaching toward. And Paul says, this is what's happened to the, the Colossian Christians. Their life has changed because their hope changed. Because something, some vision of the future was suddenly ahead of them that had such a kind of powerful drawl that it changed the possibilities for right now. So, so what is that hope? Like, what is it that's kind of got a hold of them that's captured their vision? Um, well, he, he's really good about just summing this up in a couple sentences in verses 12 to 14. Paul says, God made it so that you could take part in the inheritance. 
in light granted to God's holy people. He rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He set us free through the Son and forgave our sins. Let's just walk through this briefly. He, He rescued us from the control of darkness. Let's start with that. He rescued us from the control of darkness. Um, What is Paul talking about? Well, this language of rescue or redemption, this is language that comes from the Old Testament story of Exodus, where where the people of Israel are enslaved. They're enslaved. They're being forced to make bricks for Egypt, and they're crying out to God in the kind of suffering and slavery they're experiencing, and God sends Moses to rescue them from slavery. And Paul says, fundamentally, like, this is the story of what God is doing for the world in Jesus. Um, sometimes you, you'll hear a version of the Christian story that makes it sound something like the problem with the world is mainly that God is mad. Now, that is not a New Testament vision. The, the, the problem with the world, in the perspective of the early Christians, that they got straight from Jesus, the primary problem is not that God is mad. The problem is that we are enslaved. Now, the, the first century world is a world that has a lot of slavery. They, they know a lot about this. Um, the, there are a lot of ways that you could get enslaved, um, but one of the ways is if you got into debt, you could actually sell yourself as a slave to pay off your debts. And basically, uh, this is what Paul says has happened. Like, we got into debt, we sold ourselves into slavery, and the problem with selling yourself into slavery is once you're, you opt in, you can't voluntarily opt out. That's the nature of slavery. Like, we, we've sold ourselves under the control of something that Paul calls the powers, with a capital P. Or sometimes he calls them the rulers and authorities. Now, to to modern ears, this might sound a little bit strange because you might be saying to yourself, like, I'm free, I'm not a slave, and what are these, like, powers anyway? Like, this sounds like weird, supernatural nonsense. But I think we're much more familiar with this in practice than we are in theory, right? Like, we know this from our experience, even if we don't know quite how to talk about it. Like, we know that when we took that first drink or we popped that first pill, that was a completely free choice. But after that, it's a little less clear how free the next choice was. Or or maybe you've had an experience of just feeling like you're a little bit like a human volcano. There's just this level of anger that's simmering underneath you all the time, and you don't know where it comes from, and it just kind of erupts without you consciously choosing it. Or maybe you know there's a thing that's the right thing to do or a thing you want to do, but you're just paralyzed by this overwhelming sense of fear. Or maybe somebody hurts you at some time in your past and you want to move on with the rest of your life, but you keep reliving that pain again and again. And it's controlling everything. I mean, all of those things are how the powers work, but the powers also aren't just like internal, personal, psychological things. They also work externally in systems. I mean, back in in Egypt, the Israelites were enslaved, building wealth 
for the top tier people in Egypt. The powers love to build systems where some people's labor is exploited for other people's benefit. The powers also love to just feed division, to take small differences with people, between people and make them bigger and bigger and bigger and to drive this wedge until people are driven apart and just hate each other. I mean, that's how the powers work. Sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're subtle and hidden. But, but the outcome of the story is no matter what. Like, nobody is as free as they think they are. I mean, th- this idea that we just can, like, fundamentally do wh- whatever we want, that, that's like a human myth that we like to tell each other. Um, but, but that is not the actual human condition as anybody really experiences it. Nobody is that free. So Paul says... In verse 13 and 14, God has rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. He's set us free through the Son and forgiven our sins. Which is basically Paul's way of saying, God is a liberator. God gets in the face of the powers, gets in the face of darkness, and says, Enough of this. You can't have these people, these people are mine. You can't own them. Now, at the start of his ministry, um, when Jesus is explaining to people what is he about, like what did he come for, the very first thing Jesus tells people he came for is, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim freedom to the captives, right there at the beginning. Like this is Jesus' own kind of description of why he came. He, God has sent Jesus to confront the powers and to fundamentally set people free because God despises slavery in every form that it comes in. So, so how does the rescue plan work? Like, how has this actually worked out? Um, well, Paul describes the rescue plan of Jesus basically in two stages. Um, stage number one, we get, a, we get to hear a little bit more about later in the letter to Colossians, but I, I just want to read two verses Um, Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. God destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, the powers, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. This is Paul's description of stage one. Stage one of the mission to rescue everybody is expose and embarrass the powers. I mean, the powers are basically like marching around the world, making all of these big blustering claims about being able to control everybody. But it's sort of like if you remember the old Wizard of Oz movie where the curtain peels back and you finally get to see the little guy behind the curtain. Right? Or, or, or it's like the powers are these giant like Godzilla-like monsters that are running around stomping on everything, and you're terrified, and then somebody pulls off the mask, and you see the tiny little shriveled, weak, helpless thing beneath it. Like the powers can still bluster, they can still make big claims, they can still harass people, but they don't have the power to terrify you anymore when you've seen just how small the thing beneath them is. And this is what Jesus has done. This is stage one of the rescue plan. Is like peel off the mask and show just how pathetic these powers are. I mean, once you see what's beneath, they can harass you, but they can't own you. 
I mean, you, you might be experiencing trauma or mental illness or addiction, and those things will still be a real struggle, but those things won't own you anymore. I mean, fear and anger and guilt, they can still talk to you, they can talk as loud as they want, but they can't control how you respond. All of the, the powers that are at work in systems, racism, classism, sexism, they can harass you, they can make your life difficult, but they can't tell you who you are. This is stage one of the process. Expose the powers and inform them they no longer get to own anyone who belongs to Jesus. Your story is no longer written or defined by them. And then um, in, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul kind of gives a nod to stage 2. So right now we are in stage 1. We're experiencing stage 1. But there's a second stage of the rescue plan still to come. And Paul says, God made it so you could take part in the inheritance, in light granted to God's holy people. Uh, this language of inheritance goes back to the Exodus story again. Um, if you remember, when God rescued the slaves from Egypt, what happens next? They, they leave behind the old powers, the old land of slavery, and God brings them to, them to a new land, Canaan, where they can live in freedom. Uh, stage two of God's rescue plan, first is to like, get people out of slavery. The second plan is to bring them to a new world, a new land, a new place, where the powers don't even exist anymore. Where, where that harassment, that struggle, it doesn't even happen. Where all of the, the pain and the suffering and the struggle, the powers cause, are gone. In the Old Testament, that's this little land called Canaan. In the New Testament, that is planet Earth. It's planet Earth remade. So, so the, the promise is not just like, the, these things can't own you anymore. The promise is that God is headed toward a future that is going to be fundamentally different than where we are now. Whatever that kind of deep source of pain and struggle is in your life, that has an ending point. It's not going to be forever. There's another side where that thing is no longer true at all. So just to go back to, to verse 5 where we started, um, Paul's statement that you have faith and love because of the, the hope that you have I think there's a lot of confusion in Christianity about the role of the future in Christian faith. Um, maybe some of you were raised in, in versions of Christianity where it was like, all you really are supposed to do is pray the prayer and go to heaven someday. And like, God doesn't really have much to say or do with the world as it is now. But there are others of us who had that experience and like reacted against it and, and maybe have subscribed to a new version of Christianity where you're not supposed to care about the future at all. Just be good. Do the right thing. Make the world better. There are still other people I talk to who, who think the Christian story is you should love, you should have faith, you should do the good stuff so that you can earn the future that God offers. If you love enough, then maybe you'll get it. None of those things are the actual New Testament vision of how this story works. Now, the New Testament vision is that hope powers the Christian life. Hope is what drives everything else. Like God has made a promise to us about how God is acting, what God is doing, a, a grand rescue plan, a transfer into this amazing new better world that we don't have to earn. It happens because we are God's children and it is guaranteed no matter what. 
So everything else we do in the Christian life, all of that trust and that love that we're growing and developing, all of that comes out of this base level hope and joy in the thing that is already promised and guaranteed. Hope powers everything else. I mean, imagine I told, if I told you there is a rich benefactor here at Trinity Mennonite who has made a promise to name you as their personal heir. I mean, what would that change if you knew you were about to inherit a fortune? I don't know what that would change for you, but I know what it would for me. Um, To begin with, I would worry way less. I would spend my money differently. I would take way bigger risks. I wouldn't feel the need to hoard anything anymore. I mean, even things that I might feel like are deprivations now, if there are areas in my life I feel like I have to sacrifice or struggle, it wouldn't feel like that big a deal because I knew that very soon things were going to be different. I mean, this is what Paul is arguing about, the, the whole story of Jesus. Jesus has made you an adopted child of God and an heir of everything that's his, which is literally everything. The future, the world, all of it is God has given to Jesus and Jesus has made us heirs. You are about to inherit absolutely everything. So the story of the Christian life is just live knowing that's your future. Live as anybody would if they were assured the future was actually that good. At the end of this this opening to the letter, Paul gives a couple examples of like what kind of living this assurance of the future, this inheritance, this hope makes possible. Um, He he lists three things we can do that are pleasing to God because of this hope. Um, Verse 10, you can please God by producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Um, What kind of fruit is he talking about? Well, he's already mentioned it several times earlier in the letter. Um, Verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for all God's people. Verse 8, he informed us of your love in the Spirit. The fruit that Paul is looking for here is just simply love. You know, the, the difference between relating to people with this kind of hope and without is like when you know fundamentally that you are taken care of, that all of your needs are met, that this incredible future is yours, I mean, you don't have to have relationships that are strained anymore by fear and anger and resentment and unforgiveness toward other people. You are good. Your future is good. You, you are fundamentally cared for. So what you offer everyone else is offered just out of the freedom of knowing you are that secure. It's it's a different kind of love that's possible when you don't need anything from anybody. You can just live in love and freedom. Verse 11, the the second thing Paul says you can do to be pleasing to God is um, by being strengthened through his glorious might so that you endure everything and have patience. I love that Paul says this is what God's power is given to you for, first and foremost, to endure and to have patience. Um, Endurance is a word um, that's used for the, the ability to keep going in situations that are hard, to keep doing the right thing even when it doesn't seem to pay off quickly. Um, patience is a word for, for a kind of posture you have toward other people. The, the ability to be gentle to other people who are still on the journey and not getting it right. 
When you know that the future is set, it's guaranteed that that hope is coming, you can endure in tough times, and you can be patient with other people who are making it tough. Right? Because you know this is a speed bump on the way to somewhere you're both getting. And the, the third thing in verse 12, Paul says, is you can give thanks with joy to God the Father. I mean, no matter what's going on in your life, you can live with this kind of foundation of, of deep joy and gratitude because you know that where the story is going is toward this incredible future. Like, whatever, whatever the struggles and the bumps of the moment are, you know where this thing is headed. I mean, this is Paul's description of an entire life, what a life looks like that is defined by hope. Like, when, when you're being driven along toward, by this hope toward what God has offered and what God is doing, endurance, patience, joy, love, all of it just becomes the natural byproduct of that hope driving you toward the future. I think that the takeaway for me this week, as I've been listening to Paul make this argument to the Colossians, um, is just an awareness how many of us are living lives that are just really impoverished in hope. Like, we're trying to sustain something where hope is really, really small. And maybe that's because you are experiencing the powers, whether they're coming, working inside you or in systems around you, and it feels like the powers are just like crushing you with their weight. Or maybe it's because you are following a Christian faith that is like, do, 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 sacrifice, do the right thing, do the right thing. And this, this vision of Jesus you're following doesn't feel like good news anymore because it asks everything and promises nothing. Like some, somehow our lives, our, our hope has gotten out of balance. And wherever we're, we're kind of beginning getting from on this, I think there's just, there's an invitation to God to remember what is driving this whole story. Like, maybe, maybe there are some of us who've never even begun the journey of saying, yes, I want to be adopted into God's family and become a part of this community that's inheriting. Maybe for us, the first step is just to say yes. Yes, God, I want to be a part of your family. I want to be a part of this story where everything is offered. I mean, for, for others of us, maybe we've been a part of God's family a long time, but we've really lost sight of the, the kind of core vision that to be God's child is to be God's heir. It's, it's a fundamental, it's not just a demand on you somehow, it's a fundamental promise about what the present and the future offers. No slavery and inheritance beyond what any of us have imagined. So I want us to just take a moment and pray together as we close um, and, and say yes as much as we're able to a renewal of our hope. Let's pray. God, we confess how easy it is for us to lose sight of how good the news Jesus brought is. Jesus didn't come to lay burdens on anyone's back. He was really clear about that. He came with good news. He came with a hope that changes everything. Some of us have lived our whole lives in the water of that hope and like a fish haven't even realized what we're swimming in. 
Maybe we've, we've totally lost sight of, of the promise that is meant to drive everything along. If that's true of us this morning, we pray you would open our eyes and renew our hope that we would know and experience ourselves as heirs of Jesus, heirs of everything. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never said yes to this offer of yours, um, we just take this moment to say we want it. We want to belong to someone who has the power to break the powers. We want to belong to someone who is committed to our freedom even more than we are. We want to be your children and heirs and to be part of this promised future that looks so much better than today looks that we can hardly even wrap our minds around it. Thank you, Lord, for the extraordinary promises you give us, for the hope that's before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.